Thanks for tuning into The Scoop. I hope we can continue to serve as an important source of information and entertainment during these unprecedented times. I want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Bitstamp, before we get started with the episode. They're the original global cryptocurrency exchange. Since 2011, Bitstamp has been a cornerstone of the cryptocurrency industry and the preferred exchange for serious traders and investors, trusted by over 4 million customers, including top financial institutions. Bitstamp is built on professional-grade trading technology. Their platform is powered by a matching engine from NASDAQ, the global stock exchange, and their APIs are consistently recognized as the best in the industry. Bitstamp's advanced trading interface, TradeView, features live charting, deep analytical tools, and is available on web and mobile. You can download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to learn more and to start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to what is, I say this all the time, but this is actually very much the case. This is a very special episode of The Scoop. We have joining me as my co-host, Teo Leibowitz, for the first time on this side of the mic with me in probably three months. And on the other side of the mic, we have Tarun Chitra, who is a dear friend of the block. We're really excited for this conversation. We're going to be diving into... Robinhood and high frequency trading, PFOF, some of the most exciting topics I think there might be in finance. If you've been paying attention to the markets, if you've been paying attention to Davy Portney, Presidente, you know that there is this narrative out there that the Robinhood traders are driving market activity and piling into stocks like Hertz and whatever have you, YOLO bets and whatnot. And if you are a reader of the block, you would have noticed that we found some very interesting data pertaining to payment for order flow, the way that many of these brokers, Robinhood in particular, makes uh, a good portion of their revenue. And so why do we have Tarun on? Well, Tarun, who is the co-founder of the Gauntlet Network, which basically the best way to think about what they do there is they help crypto developers forecast different risks related to different blockchain systems. His background is in the HFT world, okay? He was at DE Shaw as a programmer and associate for about five years, and he is just one of the most well-versed, well-respected people in that space. You might not know that much about him because it's a very secretive space, and a lot of the people in the HFT world like to keep a low profile. But we have Tarun on. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. It's exciting to uh, exciting to talk about a topic that I feel like I have uh, lived through for for a decade, and now all of a sudden I see uh, famous Silicon Valley investors learning about it for the first time, and I'm just wondering, wow, has the world flipped? And the chasm of what this space actually looks like and how it functions is so far from the reality, or rather, to put it differently, the way people interpret and perceive this corner of the market is so different from the reality. And I think you see a lot of that in the way Silicon Valley types talk about it and a lot of you know crypto people maybe tweet about it. And so we, we can dissect some of those topics. I guess the first place to start is with you know, PFOP, payment for order flow. 
if you go through Twitter on, on any day, Robin hood is making headlines. People are piling in about how they're selling customer data to hedge funds, right? That's like, it's very strange that the hedge fund world is getting mixed into this when they have nothing to do with it, but there's probably some confusion around Citadel's role, Citadel being a hedge fund and also operating Citadel securities. So I guess to start there, like one of the biggest misconceptions about the relationship between retail brokers and high frequency trading firms is exactly what payment forward or flow is. It's, it's viewed as this nefarious evil thing. How would you explain it to someone who kind of just looks at it and immediately jumps the gun and draws the conclusion that it's nefarious? Yeah. So historically you've always needed to use a third party to execute security transactions. Part of these reasons were, were legal in terms of dealing with settlement and clearing. Part of these reasons were also because you didn't trust your counterparty and you needed a sort of trusted party who would make sure that uh, the securities would settle, dividends would get paid, share splits would occur as expected. And uh, in the process, you do end up giving up some of your rights to the exchanges or brokers uh, in the middle. Now, I think people idealize this idea of what I like to think of as the market as a perpetual motion machine. There's this mythical creature that can just take anyone's demands, any any amount of demand, any appetite for a, a particular asset, and it can internalize it and spit out the asset and take a fee. But the market is not really efficient. There's still humans there, even though there's a lot of computers. And at the end of the day, you have to give, you have to tell someone you want to buy something and exactly how and when you do that gives them a chance to adversely trade against you in some way, shape, or form. This has happened forever. So, you know, you can read a lot of a lot of books about, you know, in the 80s during kind of the big PE explosion, hedge fund uh, managers or like the proto hedge fund managers would, you know, become best friends with their brokers and have them call them right before a merger was announced so that they could buy up shares. Um, payment for order flow is basically something as a similar version of that, which is why it seems so unsavory, uh, except that it's extremely competitive. It's something where everyone is competing for the right to your information for a very short amount of time. It's quite different than, say, something like Facebook, uh, where, you know, there's no one competing. All the buyers are competing to buy a particular ad impression. But Facebook isn't really competing the servant. They're more or less a monopoly in their in their exchange. You know, that's maybe a more philosophical take, but at, on a more mechanical level, payment for order flow works in the following way. I have a bunch of people's orders and I need to get them executed. Executing a, a share trade means that I need to A, send the order to an exchange if it's going, going directly to an exchange or alternatively to a dark pool if it's a really large order. B, keeping track in my little accounting ledger of how many shares I actually have received. So how much a clearing house or a settlement person has like, so maybe I put in an order for a hundred Disney shares. I currently have 20 and the, you know, the brokers, you know, I put in a bunch of orders and they only execute 30 of them. So I need to keep track of how many I've actually filled, how many I haven't filled, why some of them didn't get filled. Was it lack of liquidity? Was it broker? Like some, was it like the stock was halted? Things like that. And then after that, you have to manage your book and reconcile all these different moving pieces. 
it's not like there's just like some invisible magic hand. You say, hey, give me a share. And then they give you a share and shake your hand and say, you're good, kid. It's much more like there's like many moving parts. And brokers exist to abstract that and make you think that it does look like Robinhood push a button share shows up in my wallet. And brokers have to have to do this execution, right? They're they're fiduciaries who are obligated to go purchase the share for you, tell settlement, clear it, make sure there's no regulatory improprieties. Yeah. And I think that's key, right? Like it's not like they're just handing off these shares arbitrarily to whichever venue, whether it be a dark pool exchange or market making firm is going to give them the most money, but there is an obligation on their behalf to get best execution, to get price improvement for the end client. And so to your point, it's not as simple as just going from point A to point B. There are all of these different moving parts. Yeah. And I think one, one thing, the, the reason that payment for order flow works is Robinhood has to give you the UX that makes it feel like, oh, I just bought a share. I just bought 20 shares of Disney. But there might be some reason that you actually can't own the 20 shares of Disney for five hours. Think of it in blockchain terms. It's like I sent a transaction, but gas prices moved against me for hours. And my transaction took a long time to get in because I didn't submit a new transaction. That can easily happen in the equities world, uh, especially when there's kind of a big event like this Hertz type of thing. People who are buying Hertz, there's so many times the the stock was halted <laughs> in the like last few weeks, right? And that leads to huge delivery time differences. But Robinhood has to tell you in your app, hey, you have 20 shares of Hertz, right? And in order, there's a price of convenience that you're paying for them to do that, which is that they need to make sure that they offshore the risk of doing all the execution and, and managing all the plumbing of actually executing this, the share price, making sure you know the, the right docs are transferred and settled and whatever. And in order for that UX, it's sort of a cost of convenience. And payment for order flow, in some sense, is really a cost of convenience. You, you should really think of it that way more than anything else. But it's one where the, there are many people competing for the right to win that convenience for a short amount of time. And we can talk about that competitive landscape because I think it's pretty interesting when most people think about Wall Street and competition, they think about investment banks like Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley competing after the same you know, large high net worth clients. But there's also this other HFT underbelly that are all trying to get the same flows. I think another reason why, you know, PFOF leaves such an unsavory taste in people's mouths is because of maybe a philosophical view of the market in which there's always going to be a winner and loser, right? Trading in any moment of time is a zero sum game. So if my 20 shares of Disney are now being routed to Citadel's internalizer, they're taking the other side of the trade, they're trading against me. But I think that view ignores the fact that, for instance, people are trading on different time horizons, right? The fact that if that you know order went directly to an exchange, maybe you're not getting as good of a price as you would if it was executed via Citadel. So that's a component that I think is, is often missed. What do you think? For sure. I, I actually think uh, this idealization of the market as a zero-sum game is actually, in some ways, a little bit of a harmful uh, thought experiment. The market is actually technically, in some ways, without subsidy, a negative-sum game. Because there's you can actually go around, yes, you purchased an asset for a certain price and someone else sold it to you and it, the price moved. And theoretically, one of you won and one of you lost. 
But under the under the covers, there's this maintenance cost of keeping the exchange up, paying fees, uh, and there's many layers of fees because the fees depend on different types of use cases. And you know, in some sense, because there's this fixed cost that people kind of don't think about and it's swept under the rug via things like free trading, you inevitably force people to have to sort of do some type of trading strategy to earn income. Um, it's just that people don't want to think about themselves as active trading strategies. They want to really think of themselves as, as passive. One of the really big things I think that historically, they're, they're really, if, if we take a historical look at how we evolved to this current market microstructure, there are really two big things I think that really led to this. Um, the first is what's called Reg NMS, Neutral Market Service. So this legislation that took place in 2005 basically turned exchange share provision into this computer science problem. Now, basically what the legislation says is that anytime a broker quotes you a price, a broker or exchange quotes you a price that says, hey, I'm willing to sell Apple for $200 and buy a share at $199, they have to give you the national best bid and offer. And what that means is they have to go and ping every other broker and exchange and say, hey, what price do you have? What's the best bid you have? What's the cheapest offer you have? And they have to return to you the national best bid and offer. This national best bid and offer thing means that you have to synchronize all of the prices over all the exchanges. And the exchanges don't want to hold risk, right? They just want to be toll collectors. Their incentives are not aligned to trading themselves. Also, there's some legal reasons they can't as fiduciaries and custodians and, and stuff like that. But for a lot of reasons, they can't trade themselves. So what happens is they give rebates to algorithmic traders who ensure that the prices stay synchronized across all of these different exchanges. So let's say Apple is listed on BATS, NYSE, and NASDAQ. And on NASDAQ, it's $200 and 198 On BATS, it's uh, 201 and 199 And on NYSE, whichever the third one, it's 200 and 201 Then the best bid is the cheapest price. And the biggest ask is the you know most expensive one. So the idea is... You can already see, based on my description, there's a bunch of hidden arbitrages, like you buy from one exchange and sell on the other. And by incentivizing algorithmic traders to do that, to do this arbitrage, this small arbitrage, with rebates and, and other mechanisms, you basically get this exchange price synchrony. Like All of the exchanges basically offer national best bid and offer. And that way, none of them get in trouble or get fined from the SEC. And so fundamentally, that is a distributed system problem. That's like a, it's almost like the consensus algorithm problem. You have to synchronize all of these exchanges and get them to agree on the best bid and the best offer. The second thing, and I think this is actually the thing that really drove payment for order flow, was is the rise of passive investing over the last 20 to 30 years of you know, ETFs and, and passive vehicles and things like Betterment. And what that meant was that there were a bunch of market participants who have buying demand, they're, they're, they're big purchasers, who need really big purchases, right? They, they, they're not just buying a couple shares here and there. And anytime they make a, a move, they're a whale. Everyone else follows them or front runs them or does other things. So they have to somehow take their big orders, break them up and not leak too much information to the market. That skill of doing the last thing is the thing that high frequency traders are good at. And so these larger institutions, especially front ends like Robinhood, basically are are making sure that they can execute these large orders without just causing huge adverse selection against themselves. And I think that was less true when you had 
less passive investment. Because with passive investment, let's say people buy $100 million of shares of, a, of an ETF, and the ETF is supposed to hold gold. Well, at the end of the day, by regulation, or at certain times based on their prospectus, that ETF has to buy gold. It has to say, and maybe gold's price went down to $50 million. Now that ETF has to go buy $50 million of gold. And that is a huge signal to the market. You're, it's public. Everyone can read your prospectus and know that you have to buy by a certain time. In order to avoid just getting front run by every market participant, you do want these kind of algorithmic traders and market makers and alternative venues like dark pools to kind of like protect yourself. Does, does that kind of make sense? So the, the passive vehicles plus kind of the fact that exchanges have to have consensus yeah. on best bid and offer. Well, if you think about really stuff- drove this. A lot of these features of the market have existed for decades, right? When we think about rebates, which have long been debated, they've been a part of market structure for, you know, the past two decades. And I think last year, uh, NYSE, NASDAQ, and CBOE together paid over $2 billion in rebates, right? And and many people in the high-frequency trading world will say PFOF, to an extent, originated or its genesis is in this rebate uh, fee structure. But there's also an argument, right, that all of this is kind of distorting markets and is adding levels of complexity that might make things more harmful for those end traders. So I think we should really take uh, crypto as the the doppelganger of, of the nor- of normal markets where you don't, I mean, you do it to some extent for the biggest coins have this, but for, for other coins, you really don't have something where there's like really meaningful rebates and you can see how inefficient the market is, right? You, you know, you might own a hundred million dollars of XTZ, but good luck getting out of it. Uh, you're, it's just going to take you forever, right? Because like, there's just so little liquidity and very little traded volume per day. It's going to take you a long time to get into a position that you want to. And there's this kind of trade-off between opportunity cost of, Oh, I, it takes me too long to get into a position versus, adverse selection, like people trading against me and front running me. And there's always this trade-off surface. You can't eliminate both of those. You can't say, hey, I don't want adverse selection. I don't want other market participants to like try to guess what I'm doing while also being able to very quickly get into a large position because that means that you've somehow, could, so someone has to be selling to you, right? And, so, and someone has to be there quoting those prices. But those people also are profit-seeking entities. So they need to make money. And so there's kind of this, trade-off service that based on how demand is in the market, whether it's way more large size players like Robinhood or institutions buying, or whether it's lots of retail, it changes the where you are on that trade-off surface of whether you have this ability to get into large positions quickly versus this inability to avoid get just getting picked off all the time. So market makers serve as this kind of trade-off and and the, the their profits and, and, and rebates and stuff are basically come from that fundamental sort of economic law that says you can't you can't have sort of no adverse selection and also you know arbitrary you know risk uh, you can't you can also take arbitrary risk and so yeah it's maybe it's it's distortionary in certain ways but I think there the idea is that you have to pick a distortion so choose your favorite distortion and crypto has <laughs> chosen one and the equities markets have chosen another. And, you know, I, I think people are afraid of it because it sounds like it's bad, but there's really no way of, you know, avoiding it. There's not an infinite number of people trading stocks. 
and there's not an infinite amount of capital. So you're going to have to have these issues. I think the crypto parallel is a, a very interesting, and I think we're going to discuss some of those in a second. Before we do, Tarun, I'd just like to ask you a question, um, which is that over the past year, I'm struggling to remember the name here, but there was an ETF issuer that issued a, uh, a private ETF. I think that's how it was marketed. So no one actually knows what the underlying assets composing this ETF actually are, although I think they are required to report returns on a, either a daily basis or perhaps an hourly basis. What do you think something like that means for market structure and this trade-off that you just alluded to? Is this possibly a, a, a solution or is it a uh, misnomer? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. So I remember that uh, I had this friend that worked at Jane Street during the financial crisis. And there used to be around that time some really kind of sketchy MBS ETFs. It's kind of like a little bit like what you're saying, where it's like they wouldn't tell you what types of mortgages were in there. They would just kind of like every day tell you a uh, uh, an average yield. But they wouldn't tell you like, hey, there's a bunch of triple A's here or triple B's or they're from South Carolina versus like being from California or something like that. And I remember he told me it was like one of their most profitable strategies was just to like reverse engineer what the components were um, because the ETF underwriter thought that they're being really private and and uh, not leaking information. But it turned out that like with large a long enough time series of how it trades and looking at correlations to other assets, you can eventually guess with high enough certainty that you you don't care. And the issuer is doesn't realize they're getting picked off <laughs> or like it's not as transparent to them as when it's. Uh, you know, an ETF that has a particular rebalance uh, frequency. And, and and I can tell you, there are people who do really simple, almost dumb, but just gigantic size strategies to front run ETFs, click trading manually, and they're still super profitable. So it's, I don't think there's, I, I just don't think that, I think there's actually this problem of security by obscurity with something like that, where the ETF underwriter thinks that they've solved the problem. And then instead, they're just like leaking returns <laughs> they don't have that same uh, defensive mentality yeah sense. exactly so onto the onto the more crypto-y side of things you did just a couple minutes ago allude to this idea of um liquidity in the crypto asset space i guess what i would like to discuss is more financial services that are being built on top of blockchains, what I guess is commonly referred to as, as DeFi or, or open finance, and how you how you see that market structure developing and, and what the parallels and, and differences are with traditional market structure. So specifically, you have this example of wanting to exit a $10 million Tezos position, and, and right now there not being a lot of liquidity there. In the open finance space, this liquidity itself is is still rather muted, although certainly growing at a at a relatively extraordinary rate. But what we have seen, and and I know this is something that you like to discuss, we've we've kind of seen this natural and seamless emergence of implicit reg NMS through the development of DEX aggregators or really, you know, these execution management systems and smart order routers. 
I guess my question is, how do you see market structure developing? And, and do you think that open finance has kind of structural inherent advantages versus legacy market structure that can help markets become more liquid at a quicker rate? Yeah, I mean, I think um, as the, the current meme of the moment is, you know, we're undergoing the agricultural revolution of decentralized finance because of the discovery of rebates, kind of akin to what, what Frank was talking about earlier, with how, you know, rebates themselves may have been the, the form of what led to this current microstructure. I, 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 I think that, that there's a very fair argument towards that. I think that the, the interesting thing is that there is less capital lockup or lock-in in these decentralized exchanges, which makes it much easier to imagine providing these kind of reg NMS style services, but driven completely by market incentives and not driven by like governmental forces. Part of the reason for that is, is just straight up transparency of, you know, I know the actual balances on all the DeFi exchanges at all times. That's very much not true in normal trading to some extent, a lot of centralized exchanges. I mean, I'd say one of the things you could say BitMEX in some ways was a pioneer of was having their insurance fund be public. And to people in crypto, that sounds like, well, duh. But I strongly suggest you go try and ask ICE and CME exactly how much margin they have in their bank account every day. I don't think you're going to get a very precise answer. You might get one or two decimals. They might be like, it's a stale number. We only tell you once a month or something. You know, they're required by law to meet those, but you only find out about when when they don't have that type of margin when something bad happens. Whereas in crypto, it's it's just transparent balances and transparent, you know, the arbitrages are just like transparent. Anyone can do them. You don't have to have an exchange seat. You just need a little bit of capital. So what you're saying is essentially one major difference is that you have transparency built in to the market structure versus government forces requiring transparency. Yes, exactly. The transparency, I think, is probably the most important feature. And I think Bitcoin trading on centralized exchanges pioneered it because, you know, I think people didn't expect that level of transparency at a centralized exchange, usually, especially in futures trading, because in futures trading, you do have a lot more trust in the counterparty, right? Like, you need them to liquidate efficiently and you need them to have the right insurance fund and you need them to do all, all this stuff. Uh, but, you know, the normal markets, a lot of that comes from the fact that they're, they're run as cooperatives. So the people who actually are the biggest traders also are on the board of governance and seats on the exchange. Uh, that Again, that that's very indirect way. Uh, you, to get transparency, you have to make it onto the board of, on, to get a seat on the exchange in some sense. And I think the open finance world takes that one step further where it's like, Actually, everything is pretty, you can pretty much read the state of all of these things. So if you see an arbitrage, you should just do it. And it doesn't really matter who you are. Like you can be like the meme, I think in February was like 19 year old kid in India, like takes a $50 million flash loan to do some type of ARB and uh, spends $7 in fees. <laughs> the juxtaposition is really interesting because I think it exposes this theme of transparency. Um, and maybe that's the reason why stuff like PFOF and the high-frequency trading world seems so nefarious is because you can't see some of these data points in real time that show the benefits of the market structure. We could debate market structure all day long, but the fact of the matter is Jane and Joe trading on Robinhood don't see 
exactly in real time what the price improvement is when they trade X amount of shares of Disney or maybe Hertz, whatever have you. They don't see the, I think it's a, it's at least 8X, the price improvement that brokers get, or rather end clients that brokers get from offloading that flow is 8X, an order of magnitude larger than what the brokers are receiving in payment for order flow. And only recently with this change in the 606 rule, did we even know what firms like TD, E-Trade were getting from brokers like Citadel and Morgan Stanley and the rest in terms of PFOF. It's really interesting. Like I think we take this transparency for granted in crypto and we almost like, to your point, demand too much of it. You know, if we think about things like BitMEX's insurance fund, you know, that's a really salient point. That's never enough. But um, but again, I just want to kind of return to this question and perhaps ask it in a slightly more direct fashion, which is that does this innate transparency that we find in open finance, is that enough of a structural advantage to drive inflows of liquidity or, or does open finance need something else in order to start resembling, at least by volumes, traditional capital markets? Um, I mean, I think it's a combination of, you know, the transparency is the novelty. The second thing is the fact that anyone can come and do an ARB. It's like pretty, that's a huge advantage. I think the infrastructure is much lower. The infrastructure hurdle that you have to cross is much lower, uh, rather. But I think the structural advantages will just come from better mechanisms and interoperability. And one of the things I think that's interesting to think about that every high-frequency trading firm has to build internally, but in, in these open finance situations, you have almost instantaneously, and this is what attracted me to eventually leave HFT, was because it just seemed like a, a huge advantage over having to have 100 firms, each of them redoing the same work, is that everyone writes their own exchange connectivity parsers and stuff. So like you can think of each exchange at a really coarse level as a blockchain, except it has only a certain type set of transactions. So some the transactions are like add order at this price at this quantity, cancel an existing order with this order ID, send a market order of this price. Um, those are the main main order types. But in reality, actually, there are thousands, hundreds of order types um, in, in practice. And, and that innovation in order type was actually super useful for uh, reducing costs to both the end users and to institutions. Things like iceberg orders, which let you kind of like hide really big size uh, over a long time. Things like the workup that in treasury markets, stuff like that. These are all mechanistic changes. Adding order types is like adding a new smart contract in some sense, or like adding a new DeFi contract with a different yield curve. But each firm on their own has to write their own interoperability code. And it's quite a bit of heavy lifting and you have to redo it every time you restart. So if I want to trade between, uh, so a dumb but very common trade that that people do in HFT, and this, this is a trade that's only about speed. It literally has nothing to do with any brains. No good machine learning algorithm. You're not, you don't have to like really understand much to do this trade. But in Chicago on the CME, there is a Nikkei future that is listed, denominated in dollars. Of course, in Japan, there is also a Nikkei future denominated in yen. And there is a trade that involves basically arbing the difference between the two and that most of the trade involves just knowing the current spot JPY USD price and then knowing the two prices and 
being the first one. You know, someone buys on one of them, you go and sell on the other one. And that trade involves you building an adapter. Each, let's say there are 100 trading firms. You're going to have 100 trading firms writing an adapter to JPY, 100 trading firms writing an adapter to CME, and then each of them writing the same kind of rough logic to interplay between them. And instead of focusing on, on 100 times of duplicated effort, DeFi protocols, you actually kind of, the contracts can interact with themselves uh, in the sense that like I can borrow from one, send to the other, and there's kind of a, a transparent, what is called like an ABI application binary interface that is common to, you know, that everyone can see and it's easy to, to build against. And that's just not true in normal finance. I actually think this is one of the most inefficient things that exists is the fact that like everyone has to rewrite their own interoperability between exchanges and between ven- like all the different venues and between your your custodian and the settlement people. You have to tell them when you bought orders. So you need a like recon system to do that, but it gets replicated by every firm. So I think the cool thing about DeFi, in some sense, from a trading standpoint, and this might be maybe a little bit too much of a wonk uh, sort of point, is a lot of like the DevOps and infrastructure requirements are just so much lower. And I think that's why you're seeing this market structure innovation happen way faster than it did in the normal market, where it took a long time for all these orders, order changes and structural changes. And like, it took a long time to change certain types of order books. Whereas like, you know, you can go change the equivalent of an order book on balancer in five seconds by changing the weights or the moral equivalent. So like, while 99% of DeFi or open finance protocols probably won't work or won't make it. I view this as a way faster form of innovation than the CME being like, we're going to add iceberg orders. Oh, we're going to add like super iceberg orders. Oh, those don't work. We're going to remove them. And also not forcing every trading firm to go re-implement how they interface with iceberg orders on their own. And I think that deduplication of work is super important. Sounds like a a SaaS opportunity, maybe that. Sort of wrapping up on my end, I, I had one question, and I'm not going to use the acronym because it's gross semantically. So payment for order flow. Come on, um, just say it. Frank, just say Frank, it. Frank, what do you, what do you, what do you, how do you feel about that? Teo, just say it. Peef off. Puff off. It does sound kind of gross. I want to hear. I, I want to hear it in British. Exactly. I think it might be the the accent that just doesn't mesh well. Um, <laughs> but payment for order flow. Uh, so, so right now in, in open finance, we have various different types of uh, liquidity or, or various different ways that liquidity is structured. And, uh, you know, the two most obvious ones, first is being, you know, just traditional limit order books. And then the second one being these automatic market makers that you see adopted across various different protocols. What we haven't seen too much of is... RFQ integrations and uh, you know, following from that payment for order flow. Is that something you could imagine seeing develop in the open finance space over the coming months and years? Is, is there any reason why something like that wouldn't develop and, and wouldn't have advantages over existing systems? So, sorry, when you say RFQ, you mean something like uh, a ping pool where I like ping. Yeah, a lot of HFT firms themselves do this now, where like if you want to do a big OTC order, you can just tell them directly and they'll go execute it and they'll give you a quote. So there are these like ping pools. You're thinking something more like an OTC ask, right? 
Yeah. I, I think the biggest issue with that is just privacy. I think the moment we actually have private DEXs or like bounded time privacy, like it's not private given long enough time, but it's private for like X blocks after a transaction or something. I think the moment you have private DEXs that are can handle large size, that's when you'll see that. I think the other there's too much adverse selection in in the the transparency comes has a, a double is a double edged sword, right? Because you're trans, everyone loves talking about transparency is great, and I, I definitely think that's one of the main reasons you see new market structure in crypto versus normal stuff. There is this negative to transparency, which is like if I'm a whale, I don't want people knowing I'm making an order, which is you know, why crypto OTC is like the biggest kind of hypocrisy that exists in some sense, because like the idea of owning your own keys and being open and whatever is like completely out the window once people start using using OTC desks. But the OTC desks do provide one thing, which is that they provide privacy. You don't tell the chain itself and you don't tell Coinbase and you don't tell BitMEX that you're making this trade. And people value that privacy. And so somehow you need to find a way to, to have a private decentralized exchange for that to really take off. Couldn't you just do messaging off-chain and then settlement on-chain? Uh, I mean, oh, okay. But then you're just like a normal OTC desk, right, at that point? Like, people people already kind of do that. Yeah, sure. I guess it's not effectively decentralized, quote-unquote. But, um, but yeah, I guess the question would be, why why don't we see more of that? Today. I think I think it boils down to like the the current mechanisms in DeFi are really good for small order size because at small order size it isn't worth it for someone to front run you. It's too the 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 opportunity cost of like the tiny profit they earn off front running a couple small orders is too small. This is why big trading firms are not like super excited about DeFi. I, I was actually speaking at uh, Gauntlet's part of this thing called the Chicago DeFi Alliance, and you know I was talking to some of the people from Jump there and they were just like yeah i mean like what's the point of even trading this like the this you know you can't really take big size and if you do take big size everyone just sees you in the mempool i think that's kind of the thing is that this resembles bitcoin trading in like 2013 through 15 where it was like a lot of small size trades and like that's why you could have all the quadrigas of the world kind of come into existence because you didn't need the network effect then um but i think that the privacy aspect is the biggest missing piece to getting to, to, to truly decentralized OTC desks, even like automated OTC desks. I, I do think fundamentally that they will get replaced. Like I think a lot of the OTC desks for these decentralized assets will get replaced. I think obviously for Bitcoin and stuff, you, you have to have that. There's been some attempts to take a stab at decentralized OTC, but it'll be interesting to see how the market structure develops and, and the degree to which it models itself after the traditional world. I, I was paying a few traders um, over the weekend to see if, you know, they knew of any different high frequency trading firms that crypto exchanges were routing to um, who, you know, provided payment for order flow. And, and it just doesn't exist yet at this point. It'd be interesting to see if it does. The one thing that does exist is miners do sell flow uh, upfront to trading firms. So like, Miners will make basically forward contracts where they say, I'll deliver uh, X blocks to you, give me liquidity now, and then we settle the delta on your executed price later. It's not quite payment for order flow, but it's in the current sense where it's like instantaneous, right? Like it's like, uh, okay, I promise you I'll get the shares as fast as possible. It's more like I'm a miner and I'm hedging my risk, but the trading firms buying it use use that flow they buy to market make. 
because like that gives them inventory. Well, that that leads to a question that is more centered in the traditional world about the benefits for the HFT firms. We talked about the benefits for customers of firms like Robinhood, right? You get that price improvement, but for a firm like Citadel, right, which is just the vacuum in this market, when you think about PFOF, sorry, Teo, um, they are the biggest player. What do they benefit from in taking on all of this retail inventory? What is the benefit for them? Ah, okay. Yeah. So let's suppose that currently on an order book, you see Apple shares and you see 100 shares offered at $200 and you see 100 shares. I'm just picking round numbers so it's easy to reason about. But you, you have 100 shares offered at $200 and 100 shares on the bid at 199 In some sense, I, I gave you very little information, but what you can say from this things statistically is that there's roughly a balance between supply and demand, right? Because there's roughly the same amount of resting orders on both sides of the book. So that kind of says like, you know, there's the, the, there's, you're at an equilibrium and like there haven't been any market orders that have changed that. Now let's suppose that there are a bunch of people from Robinhood who want to put 200 quantity, 200 shares of Apple to be sold at $200. So now the offer has 300 shares to sell and the bid has 100 shares to buy at a very 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 coarse level that tells you that there's three times the sell pressure right because there's three times the shares being offered to be sold versus the versus being bought and you as a market maker what you're supposed to do is your your profit comes from being able to quote accurately and then collect the spread when someone makes a market order so quoting means you say here's the place i'm willing to bid and here's the place i'm willing to offer so if you're Citadel and you own all of Robinhood's flow and all of that data right there is from Robinhood, those 200 orders, you basically have, let's call it like 100 microsecond, 50 mics to 100 mic type of advantage of knowing that there's three times the sell pressure. The rest of the market only sees that the sell and buy pressure is even. So no one tries to actively push the price down. Like no one makes a market sell because they, they predict the market's going to go down. Whereas you see that ahead of time. And so then you push the price down and... and you know, use that to fill the inventory and then collect the delta when you stop being short. Does that kind of make sense? So the the idea is like by buying the flow, you're able to kind of quote the information. Tighter. The information is in the open market now, and you can you can execute on that. Yeah, well, you have the information just before the open market, but because of the way the agreements work, is you have to execute these in a, a very fast amount of time. So you can't you promise Robinhood that like within a couple seconds you'll give them an ACK message. So. Most of your profit actually doesn't come in the of, of that couple seconds. Uh, most of your profit comes in like a, a five to fifty microsecond round trip time of your trade that that you do that you you're doing the execution for, and so that information is very important, but it's also extremely time sensitive. And the time sensitive nature of it is why you're willing to pay for it. So when you look at the leaderboard in terms of the amount of money trading firms are giving to these brokers, Citadel Execution Services, Citadel Securities, the proper name of the firm, is at the top. What have they done? I know you have your finger on the pulse in this market and you watch it closely. What are they doing that is just blowing everyone out of the water? Why are they at the top of the list? Have they historically invested more in technology? Are they working longer hours? <laughs> you know, What is it that makes them the top dog? Citadel definitely has a, a reputation as a place that is a revolving door and chews people out. 
so the longer hours thing may be kind of kind of true to some extent, but I think they've they and Jump, of course, have invested probably the most in technology of, of anyone. Period. I, I think no no there's kind of no comparison and competition. Uh, but Jump focuses really a lot more on synthetic products, derivatives, futures, options, etc. They 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 try to stay away from equities or like they don't have a gigantic equities team. I think they started doing more Statarb stuff, so lately they they are. But but I think part of the thing that Citadel has is a it really is a you eat what you kill type of place. So their profit sharing is I would say more favorable to employees, and they pay significantly higher. Obviously, you're it's a high risk, high reward situation. Like, you know, I think a lot of people just join and leave. And the second thing I think that maybe is a little less commonly known is something that like Facebook and Google did when they were growing a lot. And and Citadel has been doing this forever is that they really swoop in and hire traders from failed shops. They really aggressively go and, and like, I would say like do aqua hires more or less. And that's like a talent vacuum. So there's like, I think the, the thing about trading a little, it's a little bit like tech where like, I think tech it, in tech, it matters less by like a couple orders of magnitude, but in trading, all it takes is like one person with a really good idea to make a lot of money in tech. That's very unlikely. And so these firms also are very aggressive on their legal terms in terms of non-competes and stuff to make sure their IP is safe. So Citadel and Jump are, are I would say on the non-compete spectrum of the, on the most aggressive side. But yeah, I mean, I think they, they, to their credit, they really do. I think they they reward high performers better than anyone else in terms of just raw profit share. Yeah, I mean the cutthroat thing is definitely something that I've I've heard about and have reported on in the past. I want to be respectful of your time. We should do a part two to this if Teo's up for it. I think we could continue to uh, you know talk for another three hours if we wanted to. But it is the weekend. The weekend is knocking on the door. And we want to let uh, Tarun go. But I guess one way to sort of just close things out at a high level, you know, anyone who casually has observed or watched the HFT market landscape, if you will, ecosystem, knows that the money, the high flying money over fist days are long behind us. So when you talk to folks in the industry, what's the future look like? And to what degree does payment for order flow or taking on brokerage orders play into that? Yeah, I think payment for order flow is a way, is a good way of like solidifying your market presence. If you think about it, you take risk in HFT on very short timescales, lots of short timescale risk. And then, you know, you have no, there's no moat in some sense. When you have these payment for order flow agreements, they can last for months or years in some sense. And that is a big time trade-off. Like there's a kind of a, 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 the fact that you can kind of like lock in some portion of your profit for a longer time, which is just like, like in HFT is really hard to find. But I would say, I mean, the, the space is kind of, in my mind, it's just like kind of plateauing to like being an established field and there's not really kind of like new stuff happening. Um, but basically, like, I, I think it's kind of plateaued in a lot of ways. I, I, it doesn't feel like there's a lot of new stuff happening. And I think, you know, I think, well, to some degree, that might be what's drawing so many of them to the crypto world from jump to, you know, DRW, a lot of them are diving in headfirst because of maybe the lack of opportunities in the traditional side of high frequency, low latency trading. 
For sure. I mean, that's, you know, our, our team at, uh, at Gauntlet is pretty much all people from HFT. And I can tell you that boredom is uh, is also a, a really good reason for people to leave. <laughs> well, I hope people weren't bored listening to this episode. I definitely had a lot of fun and we will have to have you back on Tarun. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. Talk to you soon. I'd like to give our sponsor Bitstamp a big thank you. The original global cryptocurrency exchange. Bitstamp is built for professional traders, yet intuitive enough for any investor. You can use Bitstamp's advanced trading interface, TradeView, to execute your strategy or instantly buy crypto in seconds when the opportunity strikes, all from your computer or mobile device. Bitstamp prides itself on delivering unmatched customer service with a human touch. Their global customer care team is available around the clock via telephone, email, and social media. When you contact them, you'll always speak to an actual person, not a bot. You can download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to learn more and to start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro.